Section Zero of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume Seven. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rositer Johnson, and John Rudd. Section Zero. An Outline Narrative tracing briefly the causes connections and consequences of the great events from dante to gutenberg the earlier renaissance charles f horn fifty years ago the term renaissance had a very definite meaning to scholars as representing an exact period toward the close of the fourteenth century when the world suddenly reawoke to the beauty of the arts of greece and rome to their charm of their gayer life the splendor of their intellect we now know that there was no such sudden reawakening, that Teutonic Europe toiled slowly upward through long centuries, and that men learned only gradually to appreciate the finer side of existence, to study the universe for themselves, and look with their own eyes upon the life around them and the life beyond. Thus the word Renaissance has grown to cover a vaguer period, and there has been a constant tendency to push the date of its beginning ever backward as we detect more and more the dimly dawning light amid the darkness of earlier ages. Of late, writers have fallen into the way of calling Dante the morning star of the Renaissance, and the period of the great poet's work, the first decade of the fourteenth century, has certainly the advantage of being characterized by three or four peculiarly striking events which serve to typify the tendencies of the coming age. In 1301, Dante was driven out of Florence, his native city republic, by a political strife. In this year, as he himself phrases it, he descended into hell. That is, he began those weary wanderings in exile which ended only with his life, and which stirred in him the deeps that found expression in his mighty poem, the Divina Commedia. Throughout his masterpiece, he speaks with eager respect of the old Roman writers and of such Greeks as he knew. So we have admiration of the ancient intellect. He also speaks bitterly of certain popes, as well as of other earthly tyrants. So we have the dawnings of democracy and of religious revolt, of government by oneself and thought for oneself, instead of submission to the guidance of others. More important even than these, in its immediate results, Dante, while he began his poem in Latin, the learned language of the time, soon transposed and completed it in Italian, the corrupted Latin of his commoner contemporaries, the tongue of his daily life. That is, he wrote not for scholars like himself, but for a wider circle of more worldly friends. It is the first great work of any modern speech. It is, in very truth, the recognition of a new world of men, a new and more practical set of merchant intellects which, with their growing and vigorous vitality, were to supersede the old. In that same decade, and in that same city of Florence, Giotto was at work, was beginning modern art with his paintings, was building the famous cathedral there, was perhaps planning his still more famous bell tower. He surely was artistic wakening enough. If we look further afield through Italy, we find in 1303 another scene tragically expressive of the changing times. The French king, Philip the Fair, so called from his appearance, not his dealings, 
had bitter cause of quarrel with the same Pope Boniface VIII who had held the great jubilee of 1300. Philip's soldiers, forcing their way into the little town of Anagni, to which the Pope had withdrawn, laid violent hands upon his holiness. If measured by numbers, the whole affair was trifling. So few were the French soldiers that in a few days the handful of townsfolk in Anagni were able to rise against them, expel them from the place, and rescue the aged Pope. He had been struck, beaten, say not wholly reliable authorities, and so insulted that rage and shame drove him mad, and he died. Not a sword in all Europe leaped from its scabbard to avenge the martyr. Religious men might shudder at the sacrilege, but the next pope, venturing to take up Boniface's quarrel, died within a few months under strong probabilities of poison, and the next pope, Clement V, became the obedient servant of the French king. He even removed the seat of papal authority from Rome to Avignon in France, and there for seventy years the popes remained. The breakdown of the whole temporal power of the church was sudden, terrible, complete. Increasing Power of France Following up his religious successes, Philip the Fair attacked the mighty knights of the temple, the most powerful of the religious orders of knighthood which had fought the Saracens in Jerusalem. The Templars, having found their warfare hopeless, had abandoned the Holy Land, and had dwelt for a generation inglorious in the West. Philip suddenly seized the leading members of the order, accused it of hideous crimes, and confiscated all its vast wealth and hundreds of strong castles throughout France. He secured from his French pope approval of the extermination of the entire order, and the torture and execution of its chiefs. Whether the charges against them were true or not, their helplessness in the grip of the king shows clearly the low ebb to which knighthood had fallen, and the rising power of the monarchs. The day of feudalism was past. We may read yet other signs of the age and the career of this cruel, crafty king. To strengthen himself in his struggle against the pope, he called in 1302 an assembly, or states general, of his people and following the example already established in england he gave a voice in this assembly to the third estate the common folk or citizens as well as to the nobles and the clergy so even in france we find the people acquiring power though as yet this third estate speaks with but a timid and subservient voice requiring too much encouraged by its monkey-asking sovereigns who little dreamed it would one day be strong enough to demand a reckoning of all its tyrant overlords Another event to be noted in this same year of 1302 took place farther northward in King Philip's domains. The Flemish cities Ghent, Liège, and Bruges had grown to be the great centers of the commercial world, so wealthy and so populous that they outranked Paris. The sturdy Flemish burghers had not always been subject to France, else they had been less well-to-do. They regarded Philip's extractions as intolerable and rebelled. Against them marched the royal army of ironclad knights, and the desperate citizens, meeting these with no better defense than stout leather jerkins, led them into a trap. At the Battle of Courtray, the knights charged into an unsuspected ditch, and as they fell, the burghers, with huge clubs, beat out such brains as they could find within the helmets. It was subtlety against stupidity the merchant's shrewdness asserting itself along new lines. King Philip had to create for himself a fresh nobility to replenish his depleted stock. 
In fact, there is so much to pause on in Philip's reign, will in itself suggest the truth that France had grown the most important state in Europe. This, however, was due less to French strength than to the weakness of the empire, where rival rulers were being constantly elected and wasting their strength against one another. If Courtray had given the first hint that these ironclad knights were not invincible in war, it was soon followed by another. The Swiss peasants formed among themselves a league to resist oppression. This took definite shape in 1308 when they rebelled openly against their Habsburg overlords. The Habsburg duke of the moment was one of two rival claimants for the title of emperor, and was much too busy to attend personally to the chastisement of these presumptuous boors. The army which he sent to do the work for him was met by the Swiss at Mortgarten, among their mountain passes, overwhelmed with rocks, and then put to fight by one fierce charge of the unarmed peasants. It took the Austrians seventy years to forget that lesson, and when a later generation sent a second army into the mountains, it was overthrown at Sempach. Swiss liberty was established on an unarguable basis. A similar tale might be told of Bonnachbar, where, under Bruce, the Scotch common folk regained their freedom from the English. Contre, Mortgarten, Bannockburn. Clearly a new force was growing up all over Europe, and a new spirit among men. Knighthood, which had lost its power over kings, seemed like to lose its military repute as well. The development of the age was, of course, most rapid in Italy, where democracy had first asserted itself. In its train came intellectual ability, and by the middle of the 14th century, Italy was in the full swing of the intellectual renaissance. In 1341, Petrarch, recognized by all his contemporary countrymen as a leading scholar and poet, was crowned with a laurel wreath on the steps of the capital in Rome. This was the formal assertion by the age of its admiration for intellectual worth. To Petrarch, it ascribed the earliest recognition of the beauty of nature. He has been called the first modern man. In reading his works, we feel at last that we speak with one of our own, with a friend who understands. The Period of Disaster Unfortunately, however, the democracy of Italy proved too intense, too frenzied, and unbalanced. Rienzi established a republic in Rome and talked of the restoration of the city's ancient rule. But he governed like a madman, or an inflated fool and was slain in a riot of the streets. Scarce one of the famous cities succeeded in retaining its republican form. Milan became a duchy. Florence fell under the sway of the Medici. In Venice a few rich families seized all authority, and while the fame and territory of the republic were extended, its doge-ship became a mere figurehead. All real power was lodged in the dread and secret council of three. Genoa was defeated and crushed in a great naval contest with a rival Venice. Everywhere, tyrannies stood out triumphant. The first modern age of representative government was a failure. The cities had proved unable to protect themselves against the selfish ambitions of their leaders. In Germany and the Netherlands, town life had been, as we have seen, slower of development. Hence, for these northern cities, the period of decay had not yet come. In fact, the 14th century marks the zenith of their power. Their great trading league, the Hansa, was now fully established, and through the hands of its members passed all the wealth of northern Europe. 
the League even fought a war against the King of Denmark and defeated him. The three northern states, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, fell almost wholly under the dominance of the Hansa, until, toward the end of the century, Queen Margaret of Denmark, the Semiramis of the North, united the three countries under her sway, and partly at least upraised them from their sorry plight. On the whole, this was not an era to which Europe can look back with pride. The empire was a scene of anarchy. One of its wrangling rulers, Charles IV, recognizing that the lack of an established government lay at the root of all the disorder, tried to mend matters by publishing his golden bull, which exactly regulated the rules and formulae to be gone through in choosing an emperor and named the seven electors who were to vote. This simplified matters, so far as the repeatedly contested elections went, but it failed to strike to the real difficulty. The emperor remained elective, and therefore weak. Moreover, in 1346, the Black Death, most terrible of all the repeated plagues, under which the centuries previous to our own have suffered, began to rear its dread form over terror-stricken Europe. It has been estimated that during the three years of this awful visitation, one-third of the people of Europe perished. Whole cities were wiped out. In the despair and desolation of the period of scarcity that followed, humanity became hysterical, and within a generation, that oddest of all the extravagances of the Middle Ages, the dancing mania, rose to its height. Men and women wandered from town to town, especially in Germany, dancing frantically, until in their exhaustion they would beg the bystanders to beat them, or even jump on them to enable them to stop. France and England were also in desolation. The long hundred years' war between them began in 1340. France was not averse to it. In fact, her King Philip of Valois rather welcomed the opportunity of wresting away Guinea, the last remaining French fief of the English kings. France, as we have seen, was regarded as the strongest land of Europe. England was thought of as little more than a French colony, whose Norman dukes had in the previous century been thoroughly chastised and deprived of half their territories by their overlord. To be sure, France was having much trouble with her Flemish cities, which were in revolt again under the noted brewer nobleman Van Artevelde, yet it seemed presumption for England to attack her. England so feeble that she had been unable to avenge her own defeat by the half-barbaric Scots at Bannockburn. But the English had not nearly so small an opinion of themselves as had the rest of Europe. The heart of the nation had not been in that strife against the Scots, a brave and impoverished people struggling for freedom. But hearts and pockets, too, welcomed the quarrel with France, overbearing France. That plunderer of ships, when they traded with their friends, the Flemings. The Flemish wool trade was at this time a main source of English wealth. So Edward III of England, than whom ordinarily no haughtier aristocrat existed, made friends with the brewer Van Artevelde and called him gossip, and visited him again, and presently Flemings and English were allied in a defiance of France. By asserting a vague ancestral claim to the French throne, Edward eased the consciences of his allies who had sworn loyalty to France, and King Philip had on his hands a far more serious quarrel than he realized. In England's first great naval victory, Edward destroyed the French fleet at Sluys 
and so started his country on its wonderful career of ocean dominance moreover his success established from the start that the war should be fought out in france and not in england then in thirteen forty six he won his famous victory at crecy against overwhelming numbers of his enemies it has been said that cannon were effectively used for the first time at crecy and it was certainly about this time that gunpowder began to assume a definite though as yet subordinate importance in warfare but we need not go so far afield to explain the english victory it lay in the quality of the fighting men through a century and a half of freedom england had been building up a class of sturdy yeomen peasants who like the swiss lived healthy hardy independent lives france relied on her nobles her common folk were as yet a helpless herd of much shorn sheep the french knights charged as they had charged at courtray with blind unreasoning valour and the english peasants instead of fleeing before them stood firm and with deadly accuracy of aim discharged arrow after arrow into the soon disorganized mass then the english knights charged and completed what the english yeomen had begun poitiers ten years later repeated the same story and what with the black death sweeping over the land and these terrible english ravaging at will france sank into an abyss of misery worse even than that which had engulfed the empire the unhappy peasantry driven by starvation into frenzied revolt avenged their agony upon the nobility by hideous plunderings and burnings of the rich chateau a partial peace with england was patched up in thirteen sixty but the free companies of mercenary soldiers who had previously been ravaging italy had now come to take their pleasure in the french carnival of crime and so the plundering and burning went on until the fair land was well-nigh a wilderness and the english troops caught disease from their victims and perished in the desolation they helped to make by simply refusing to fight battles with them and letting them starve the next french king charles v won back almost all his father had lost and before his death in thirteen eighty the english power in france had fallen again almost to where it stood at the beginning of the war edward the third had died brooding over the emptiness of his great triumph his son the black prince had died cursing the falsity of frenchmen england also had gone through the great tragedy of the black death and her people like those of france had been driven to the point of rebellion though with them this meant no more than that they felt themselves overtaxed the latter part of the fourteenth century must therefore be regarded as a period of depression in european civilization of retrograde movement during which the wheels of progress had turned back it even seemed as though asia would once more and perhaps with final success reassert her dominion over helpless europe the Seljuk Turks, who in 1291 had conquered Acre, the last European stronghold in the Holy Land, had lost their power. But a new family of the Turkish race, the one that dwells in Europe today, the Osmanlis, had built up an empire by conquest over their fellows, and had begun to wrest province after province from the feeble empire of the East. In 1354, their advance brought them across the Bosporus and they seized their first european territory soon they had spread over most of modern turkey only the strong-willed constantinople held out while its people cried frantically to the west for help the invaders ravaged hungary 
a crusade was preached against them, but in 1396 the entire crusading army, united with all the forces of Hungary, was overthrown, almost exterminated in the Battle of Nicopolis. Perhaps it was only a direct providence that saved Europe. Another Tatar conqueror, Timur the Lame, or Tamerlane, had risen in the Far East. Like Attila and Genghis Khan, he swept westward, asserting sovereignty. The Sultan of the Turks recalled all his armies from Europe to meet this mightier and more insistent foe. A gigantic battle, which vague rumor has measured in quite unthinkable numbers of combatants and slain, was fought in Angora in 1402. The Turks were defeated and subjugated by the Tartars. Timur's empire, being founded on no real unity, dissolved with his death, and the various subject nations reasserted their independence. Yet Europe was granted a considerable breathing space before the Turks once more felt able to push their aggressions westward. The Council of Constance Toward the close of this unlucky 14th century, a marked religious revival extended over Europe. Perhaps men's sufferings had caused it. Many sects of reformers appeared, protesting, sometimes against the discipline, sometimes the doctrines of the Church. In Germany, Nicholas of Basel established the Friends of God. In England, Wycliffe wrote the earliest translation of the Bible into any of our modern tongues. The Avignon popes shook off their long submission to France and returned to Italy, to a Rome so desolate that they tell us not ten thousand people remained to dwell amid its stupendous ruins. Unfortunately, this return only led the papacy into still deeper troubles. Several of the cardinals refused to recognize the Roman pope and elected another, who returned to Avignon. This was the beginning of the great schism in the church. For forty years there were two, sometimes three, claimants to the papal chair. The effect of their struggles was naturally to lessen still further that solemn veneration with which men had once looked up to the accepted visagerent of God on earth. Hitherto the revolt against the popes had only assailed their political supremacy, but now heresies that include complete denial of the religious authority of the church began everywhere to arise. In England, Wycliffe's preachings and pamphlets grew more and more opposed to Roman doctrine. In Bohemia, John Huss not only said, as old men did, that the church needed reform, but going further he refused obedience to papal commands. In short, the reformers, finding themselves unable to purify the Roman church according to their views, began to deny its sacredness and defy its power. At length, an unusually energetic, though not over-successful emperor, Sigismund, the same whom the Turks had defeated at Nicopolis, persuaded the leaders of the church to unite with him in calling a grand council at Constance. This council ended the great schism and restored order to the church by securing the rule of a single pope. It also burned John Huss as a heretic, and thereby left on Sigismund's hands a fierce rebellion among the reformer's bohemian followers. The war lasted for a generation, and during its course all the armies of Germany were repeatedly defeated by the fanatic Hussites. Another interesting performance of the Emperor Sigismund was that, being deep in debt, he sold his electorate of Brandenburg to a friend, a Hohenzollern, and thus established as one of the four chief families of the empire those Hohenzollerns 
who rose to the kings of prussia and have in our own day supplanted the Habsburgs as emperors of germany also worth noting of sigismund is the fact that during the sitting of his council of constance he made a tour of europe to persuade all the princes and various potentates to join it when he reached england he was met by a band of englishmen who waded into the sea to demand whether by his imperial visit he meant to assert any supremacy over england sigismund assured them he did not and was allowed to land we may look to this english parade of independence as our last reminder of the old medieval conception of the emperor as being at least in theory the overlord of the whole of europe latter half of the hundred years war by this time england had in fact recovered from her period of temporary disorder and depression king richard the second the feeble son of the black prince had been deposed in thirteen ninety nine and a new and vigorous line of rulers the lancastrians reached their culmination in henry v henry revived the french quarrel and paralleled crecy and portiers with a similar victory at agincourt the french king was a madman and aided by a civil war among the french nobility henry soon had his neighbor's kingdom seemingly helpless at his feet by the treaty of troyes he was declared the heir to the French throne, married the mad king's daughter, and dwelt in Paris as regent of the kingdom. The Norman conquest of England seemed balanced by a similar English conquest of France, but the chances of fate are many. Both Henry and his insane father-in-law died in the same year, and while Henry left only a tiny babe to succeed to his claims, the French king left a full-grown, though rather worthless son. This young man, Charles VII continued to deny the English authority from a safe distance in southern France. He made, however, no effort to assert himself or retrieve his fortunes, and the English captains in the name of their baby king took possession of one fortress after another till in 1429 Orleans was the only French city of rank still barring their way from Charles in the far south. Then came the sudden, wonderful arousing of the French under their peasant heroine, jeanne d'arc and her tragic capture and execution at last even the french peasantry were aroused and the french nobles forgot their private quarrels and turned a united front against the invaders the leaderless english lost battle after battle until of all france there retained only edward the third's first conquest the city of calais france a regenerated france turned upon the popes of the council of constance and remembering how long she had held the papacy with her own borders, asserted at least a qualified independence of the Romans by the pragmatic sanction which established the Gallican Church. This semi-defiance of the Pope was encouraged by King Charles, who in fact made several shrewd moves to secure the power which his good fortune and not his abilities had won. Among other innovations, he established a standing army, the first permanent body of government troops in Teutonic Europe, by this step he did much to alter the medieval into the modern world he did much to establish that supremacy of kings over both nobles and people which continued in france and more or less throughout all europe for over three centuries to follow another sign of the coming of a new and more vigorous era is to be seen in the beginning of exploration down the atlantic coast of africa by the portuguese and their discovery and settlement of the canary isles 
as a first product of their voyages the explorers introduced negro slavery into europe a grim hint that the next age with increasing power was to face increasing responsibilities as well an even greater change was coming was already glimmering into light in that same year of king charles pragmatic sanction of fourteen thirty eight though yet unknown to warring princes and wrangling churchmen john gutenberg in a little german workshop had evolved the idea of movable types that is of modern printing from his press sprang the two great modern genii education and publicity which have already made tyrannies and slaveries impossible pragmatic sanctions unnecessary and which may one day do as much for standing armies end of section zero